Welcome to Shine KC. I'm your host, Tina Johnson, published author, small business entrepreneur, and domestic violence survivor. Picture this. The domestic violence victim has finally found the courage to leave the abuser for good, not going back this time and ready to start over. When the police arrived the night of the attack and hauled the abuser to jail, the scene was blood on the wall, bruises on the victim, and obvious instilled fear. Even still, the victim finally had a sense of freedom and security, only to find themselves slapped with a court order, divorce proceedings, and threats of losing their children. Before I move on with the subject of family court and domestic violence, I want to share a few ideas on domestic violence prevention, then unpack my thoughts on family court and domestic violence. First plan of action, fund prevention programs for your community's domestic violence organizations and study how well they work. Put time and effort into prevention is a way of starting at the beginning and possibly countering a person long before they develop into an abuser. Many researchers believe the best way to deter abuse is to stop people from becoming abusers in the first place. And several approaches have shown promise. We can impact prevention more in upcoming podcasts. What about make the law and penalties for domestic violence consistent and firm? No questions, no plea bargains, proven guilty, and this is is your sentence. Increase funding for support services to help empower the victims. Over 12,000 victims last year in my area alone could not be helped due to lack of resources. Help victims to become economically independent. I'm not talking about handouts here. I'm talking about start outs. Yes, I just made up a word. So many victims stay in destructive relationships because they will become homeless with their children if they leave or can't support them by themselves and their children, which makes it easier for the abuser to use the children against the victims in the court system. Lastly, change the way family courts handle cases involving domestic violence. Divorces frequently involve allegations of domestic violence, but in some cases, the victim will flee the abuser and the abuser will quickly file for divorce as a means of power and control. In cases where the police have been called and domestic violence charges are filed, The judicial system handles the issues separately with one judge presiding over the divorce, another hearing the criminal domestic violence case. This is terrible on the victims who have to deal with multiple sets of legal proceedings, each with a different process and sometimes each with a different courthouse. It also meant that family court judges hearing divorce cases might not have full information and details about their domestic violence allegations and the number of times the police have been called to that house before the victim was able to flee. A one family, one judge approach consolidating the hearings into one place would make life a little easier for the victim. But there's another big problem. Family courts don't always have handle domestic violence well. Family courts reward compromise and settlement. Most good parents want their children to have relationships with the other parent. The problem is that a parent protecting a child from abuse is leery and has a hard time agreeing to settle down in the middle and the abuser will use that against them. And it's not just the judges. Instead of deciding the factual issues of domestic violence, courts tends to punt their obligation
recommendations to mental health professionals and mediators who frequently have little training on domestic violence. How can they have the ability to decide after one hour-long meeting whether someone's violent? It's not a mental illness and there's no test for it. Or whether the abuser's lying. Instead, they're trained to see relationship problems as mutual. A solution could be to provide family judges with more specialized training and more resources in the form of counselors who have actual experience in domestic violence, who are required to go through domestic violence specific annual training. When a victim leaves an abuser and seeks refuge, the abuser often does not willingly relinquish control over that victim without a struggle. Instead, the abuser takes advantage of the divorce and custody proceedings as an avenue to continue abusing. Abusers take full advantage of custody proceedings in family courts to continue to abuse their victims. The abuser's use of intimidation during the custody process can take many forms. It can include, for instance, demanding custody. This is one of many ways that abusers use the family courts to perpetuate abuse against their victims. At present, most family courts are unprepared to address abusers' attempts to use the courts and the legal system as a tool of abuse. Family courts can stop abusers from manipulating the courts through education and taking domestic violence charges filed by the state into consideration when it comes to custody, at least until the criminal charges have been resolved. In order to understand how the family court system sometimes results in unfair outcomes for domestic violence victims, it is necessary to understand the psychological profiles of the victim and the abuser. The victim's profile. Abuse can make people react in unpredictable ways. Many domestic violence survivors may present as angry, distrustful, and suspicious with all professionals related to the court proceedings. This response is a normal reaction to the trauma of abuse, but many judges expect victims to appear victimized or helpless. When victims do not appear helpless but seem angry, the court may draw adverse conclusions about the behavior and assume the victim is purposely acting uncooperative or difficult. Based on these assumptions, judges may be sympathetic to the abuser and more readily believe the abuser's claims. Victims may also exhibit psychological symptoms that confuse judges. Many domestic violence victims suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Trauma can also affect victims' memories, leading them to have difficulty articulating events in chronological order. Courts may misinterpret the behavior as a sign that the victim is lying or maybe not even credible. On the other hand, the abuser's profile creates a positive first impression. Abusers may present as charming, charismatic, likable, reasonable, generous, and even flexible. Abusers can be highly manipulative and carefully craft their image. Many abusers can be abusive at home and private, but to the outside world, they appear to be caring and devoted to their family. When the judge encounters abusers in court, they're often swayed by the abuser's accounts of the events, which, in contrast to the victim's accounts, seem reasonable and rational, and thus more credible. Abusers often take advantage of their likable facade to present false narratives to the court above the abuse. I would describe my abuser as skillfully dishonest in his time. Abusers often lie or distort facts about the abuse in court. Abusers also falsely accuse their victims 
victims in whatever lie they can in an effect to diminish the victim's credibility with the court. Another way the abuser gets away with the abuse using family courts is falsely alleging that the victim has a mental illness or a drug problem. Many abusers have claimed that the victim committed physical abuse against them, shifting the focus away from the victim and forcing the court to entangle the variety of abuse allegations in the cases. Many abusers deny the abuse. Some abusers claim that their victim have manufactured the allegations of abuse in order to gain an advantage in the custody case, which in fact the state filed the criminal charges against and the victim is powerless to drop them. But the family courts don't take that into consideration. When abusers do admit to committing abuse, they may use tactics to minimize the violence. Abusers, when backed in a corner, may allege that the fights the victim describes also includes act of violence committed again by the victim. That leads me to ask the question, is domestic violence the only criminal act that if you try to defend yourself against it, it's not considered self-defense? In other cases, the abuser might admit to minor acts of violence like shoving in order to make the more serious and deny allegations seem less credible. The abuser-victim dynamics remains the same. No matter how the abuse is carried out, it's to have power and control over the victim to undermine the victim's independence while increasing their own power. Where the victim is a mother, the abuser tends to challenge her parental authority and tries to create tensions between her and her children. As a result, she may have difficulty controlling the children's behavior. Custody evaluators may find that domestic violence victims victims are not effective parents if they cannot control the children. Evaluators may be persuaded by a father's portrayal of himself as a powerful figure and the children may behave better in his care due to the fear of him. Children may even request to be placed with the abuser as a result of a traumatic bonding. Abusers may seem more credible than victims based on their psychological personas. Judges and evaluators may lack in-depth knowledge about domestic violence and PTSD that could be misled into trusting the calm, sincere-sounding abuser more than the emotional victims. When a judge must decide whether the abuser or the victim's account of abuse is true, the abuser's account may win out because of the perception that they are more credible. Ruling on domestic violence allegations often provides uniquely challenging for judges. Judges cannot rely on their gut instincts about whether the victim or abuser is more credible, especially without the possible knowledge of pending criminal charges or the outcome of those domestic violence charges. Instead, courts must engage in careful fact-finding to determine if accusations of domestic violence are true. Maybe courts should consider looking to the following resources for further evidence, testimony from other family members or friends, service providers, counselors, police reports, criminal case records, restraining orders, medical records, and school records. Mediation is often praised as a less confrontational way to handle divorce and custody cases. In mediation, an impartial third party facilitates 
facilitates the resolution of divorce and custody disputes to reach an agreement between parties. Supporters of mediation say that it's the less costly and more efficient and effective and provides or produces better outcomes than traditional custody litigations. However, mediation has come under significant criticism in cases of domestic violence. Mediation puts the victim of domestic violence at a huge disadvantage in custody proceedings. Because of the power imbalance in the abuser-victim relationship, victims often feel disempowered when the abuser is present and unable to voice their needs or the needs of the children during mediation. Even when the mediator meets with the victim and abuser separately, the dynamics often doesn't change. The National Council on Juvenile and Family Court Judges recommends that judges consider not requiring mediation in cases involving domestic violence where the state allows. Mediators are typically not equipped to address the unique needs of a domestic violence victim in mediation. Certification for mediators may require very minimal training on domestic violence. Often the mediator is looking out for the best interest of the children and I believe that to be true. But I also believe if there are domestic violence federal charges pending and a court order of protection is executed against the abuser, no decision of custody should be made in the abuser's favor until either the charges are disproven or dismissed. I am not saying the abuser shouldn't see the children, but the whole picture of the case should be considered first. Let's talk about resolutions to abusers using family court to continue that power and control. Family courts can file an order on their own authority to the abuser for bringing excessive motions to have to pay the attorney's fees and the costs of the victim's attorneys. Courts also have other options to discipline an abuser who files excessive motions, like courts can ban the abuser from filing any further actions or motions against the victim without permission from the court, find the abuser in contempt of court or file action against the abuser's attorney. The attorney of the abuser allowed the excessive filed if the abuser's appeals were devoid of merit and were brought merely to continue an ongoing harassment. His actions are frivolous and abuse of the court system and deserving of an appropriate punishment. The court then could and should impose financial sanctions on the abuser and order him to pay the victim's attorney's fees, and that's in my opinion. The ease and frequency with which abusers take advantage of the custody process to bully and abuse their victim is deeply troubling. Family courts must take a proactive role in preventing abuse through the legal system. Family court judges and mediators should attend training on psychological profiles of the abuser and the victim so they can identify domestic violence in court or in mediation sessions. Family court judges and mediators should watch for abuse throughout the mediation process and all states should allow domestic violence victims to opt out of mediation in a family setting. In litigation, judges should remain aware of the possibility of litigation abuse and 
sanction abusers who file frivolous motions. Courts should be wary of granting custody or visitation to abusers. If they do, courts should carefully structure all agreements to decease in the need for contact between parties. If a court order of protection is obtained against an abuser and the federal domestic violence charges are pending, the court should take the facts into consideration when awarding temporary custody until the charges are disproven or dismissed instead of ordering an exception to meet for the parental exchange, possibly putting the victim in harm's way. Steps like these will help family courts endure greater access, fairer outcomes, and increase safety for victims of domestic violence and their children. And of course, these are all my opinions. Why should we talk about domestic violence and how an abuser continues to abuse within the court systems? The more we talk about domestic violence, the more likely it becomes that we will build awareness, identify abusive behaviors, and take action to prevent harm to people in our communities who may be our family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, or our own children. The more we talk about the continued version of domestic violence within the court systems, the more we understand why it can be so hard for a victim of domestic violence to leave an abuser. Bye-bye for now.